I say here is a little peninsula and here is a viaduct leading over to the mainland. All right, viaduct. Oh, that's our shortstop. <laughs> Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night, and welcome to the Marx Brothers Council Podcast. I'm Matthew Conium, and this is Noah Diamond. Hi, Matthew. I am filled with delight because of all the people who have already become our supporters on Patreon. And at the end of this episode, I'll give a detailed update on the, the state of our Patreon. But it's just had me walking on air for the last month. Well, it's episode 53, and to make things unnecessarily confusing, if not potentially obscene, I've opted to call it Duck Privates. <laughs> Back when I wrote the annotated Marx Brothers, I was often asked if I planned any follow-up volumes devoted to other classic comedy teams. I replied that I didn't, because I didn't really write the book as someone who was devoted to old comedy and happened to decide on the Marx Brothers as the subject of my first attempt, but rather as someone who, from a young age, had been uniquely and distinctly obsessed with the Marx Brothers, in ways and for reasons that transcended such concerns as the medium in which they presented themselves, or the industrial, historical, or cultural contexts in which they worked. Nonetheless, a vintage comedy fan, I separately but absolutely am, and there was one other comedy team I did want to celebrate in print, they being that pair of corny old burlesquers, Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. Why them? Partly because I didn't feel there was enough analytical writing out there about their work, but also from motives that might best be described as evangelical. It's all too common to see them haughtily dismissed as second or even third draw comics, best suited for kids and nostalgia freaks, whereas I wanted to take them seriously. So I bit the bullet and began planning the annotated Abbott and Costello, a labour of love which I'm happy to say is now available at all likely outlets, published once again by McFarland Books. But because they made three times as many films as the Marxes, and I'm incorrigibly lazy, I made the very happy decision to invite a co-author to share the burden. And he's here with us today, making a welcome return to the podcast, Nick Santamaria. Hello, everybody. Hey, hey Nick. Hey, how are you? Hi, Noah. Hi, Matthew. You're like a piece of the furniture around here. Was this your fourth appearance? And I wish you'd stop sitting on me. That's what I'm worried about. <laughs> um, yeah, I think this is my fourth appearance. And uh, I just want to say, strange as it may seem, they give baseball players very funny names nowadays. Ravelli, <laughs> nicknames. Yeah, funny names like who's on first, what's on second. I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find out. Anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead in with that. <laughs> Hi, everybody. So, is it possible to be a Marx maniac and a Budden lunatic at the same time? Well, clearly yes, because both Nick and I are. But how easy might it be to convert a sceptic to the cause? Are there any significant elements in Abbott and Costello's work that might not merely happen to divert a Marx fan, but more specifically, actually appeal to them for anything like the same reasons? That's what we're going to find out today, as Nick and I have one hour to convert a frankly dubious Noah Diamond to the idea that there might be at least something to be said for the double act that dominated the 40s, and of whom none less than Groucho once commented, after seeing them impersonated as a pair of mice in an animated cartoon, that they should be playing rats. <laughs> 
to give you an idea of the mountain we have to climb, Noah, perhaps you could fill us in on what, if any, your previous knowledge or experience of Bodenloo has been. I'd be glad to. My first exposure to Abbott and Costello, you'll be shocked to hear, was Who's on First? And as with the Marx Brothers, now that I think of it, I encountered it on paper in a book. In fact, I think it was a school textbook, an American history textbook, when I was in, if I'm remembering correctly, fifth grade, might have been sixth. And in a section about the history of baseball, there was a, a printing of the script of Who's on First?, and I remember encountering this in school. I think we must have read it out loud. And one thing I remember about it is that Abbott and Costello's names were either not on it or were only at the top. The character names were uh, Dexter, Dexter and Sebastian, which I would later learn were their character names in the film The Naughty 90s. Um, and predictably, I was you know, instantly just in love with who's on first. Uh, I suppose I was... 11 years old, something like that. And, you know, I just thought, as most people do when they first encounter that material as children, you know, this is the funniest thing I've ever heard. This is so brilliant and, and perfect. And, and that was only the text. And I must have come home talking about it. And um, at some point, somebody gave me a cassette, a commercially released cassette of the Abbott and Costello radio show. Uh, it was an episode featuring Who's on First?, as well as a bunch of other related material uh, that all seemed really good to me too. Not quite up to who's on first, but it had the Feller pitching routine, a play on the name Bob Feller, who Bob Feller. played for the Cleveland Indians, I think. And, you know, Feller pitching, of course there's a Feller pitching. <laughs> um, and then a, a thing about a horse who runs in the mud being a mudder, eating a horse's fodder, a whole mutter and fodder stuff. I thought that was all great. And so I thought, hey, Abbott and Castell, you know, this is good stuff. Then this is in the same sort of dawn of the VCR era that first got me watching the Marx Brothers movies. Uh, we brought home from the video store um, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein and hold that ghost. And I expected this is going to be fantastic. Uh, these are the guys who do that baseball stuff. Um, and I don't remember which we watched first, but we didn't make it very far. We sort of, my mother and I think my sister and I kind of watched 10 or 15 minutes in that sort of stone-faced way. And we were in that situation where you're all being polite to each other in the room, but finally someone says, do you want to keep going with this or not? <laughs> all right, well, maybe let, let's try the other one. Maybe the other one's better. And we put on the other one and had the same response. I wish I could remember more specifically what I was responding to and, and why we felt that it was all so um, painfully unfunny and hard to get through. The only thing specific I remember is Costello acting scared, um, doing that kind of wheezing thing where he's trying to talk and he can't get the words out. And, yeah, that's it. And I remember as a child just feeling sort of very put off by that, just finding it repellent somehow. Um, and anyway, so that was my experience with their movies. I don't think we watched either of them in their entirety. And My guess would be that you started with Frankenstein because Lou doesn't get scared in Hold That Ghost for about... 35 minutes yeah. okay well that would that so. makes sense. when they get to the house when they get to the hotel yeah yeah, yeah. well that must <laughs> be right then 
Mm-hmm. Yes, and then and I continued to enjoy my one recording of their radio show. And and as a teenager, um, I used to do Who's on First a lot with my dear friend Brian Hoffman. We would perform it in variety shows and things. I was Abbott, um, and and got to know that routine inside and out. And you know, it's a very rewarding thing to perform because everyone loves it, and it never fails to kill. And as I got a little older and started to become a student of comedy, um, I just heard a lot of other people make the, the point. Um, you have refuted this point in your book pretty effectively, but it, it has been said a lot that, oh, Abbott and Costello were great on TV and radio, but their films are lackluster. And um, I heard people say that. And since it jibed with my very limited exposure to them, I, I went along with that. I thought, oh, okay, I guess that's it. Their movies are schlocky, but uh, on radio and TV, they, they could be great. And I've kind of stuck with that assumption without ever exploring their uh, their oeuvre any more deeply uh, until the last two weeks. So I'll I'll resist the the temptation to ask you and Nick to perform. Uh, oh. on first. <laughs> we could do it as Groucho so it, and Checo. <laughs> that's right. So it would be fair to say that you've gone into this exercise with an open mind, but a slight predisposition towards not liking what you find. Yeah, that's true, but uh, but that that predisposition has been balanced out by a couple of things. One, my a uh, very high level of respect for both of you guys and your opinions, your mastery of comedy and understanding of it. The You guys having so much good to say about them makes me think that 11-year-old me must have been missing something because I'd be unlikely to disagree so sharply with both of you. Another thing is... Thank you, know, you, Noel. You're very welcome. Very and, you know, there's... Yeah. It's the truth. And, and then also, you know, a lot of things, you know, you form these very strong opinions when you're very young you know i mean a lot of a lot of the classic comedy that i've watched the stuff i thought i loved and the stuff i didn't love i you know i was 15 or 16 when i first got immersed in that stuff it's like 30 years ago now and i have been on a little bit of a revisiting kick lately and finding some of my uh, you know hardened dogmas of my youth turn out to actually not hold water and there's all kinds of things i appreciate now that i didn't then and vice versa so I, I, well, I had a lot of fun with um, Walter Mitty over Christmas. Oh, so, uh, oh, did you? That's that's not a that's not a bribe, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, so I I was both uh, hoping and maybe a little bit expecting to like them more than this time I, around than I did before. To yeah, to find more to like. Okay. Okay. Well. Before Nick and I select a few examples from their work in our attempt to jade Noah's palette, can I just ask you, Nick, in general terms, how optimistic you are uh, that we will claim a sculpt here? Do you think there are things in Bud and Lou's work that a Marx fan might especially warm to, other than Margaret Dumont, of course? Oh, yeah, well, right, who shows up in Little Giant. Um, yeah, well, I, I mean, there are a few um, places where they have uh, actually crossed paths with uh, Mark's brother uh, veterans, you might say. Nat Perrin is one of them, who is uh, yes. partially responsible for one of my all-time favorite Abbott and Costello films, Pardon My Sarong. Uh, and you could go to like Lois Collier being the leading lady of the naughty 90s, who the following year shows up in uh, A Night in Casablanca. But the uh, 
looking over this topic over the past few weeks made me realize that a, a lot of the crosstalk routines that Bud and Lou did could have been adapted for Chico and Groucho. The Wyaduck routine could have easily been adapted for uh, Abbott and Costello. I think that and Harpo's magic being transferred to Lou a little bit in the films uh, are the closest things to the Marx Brothers that I see. Lou can be very Harpo-like, very childlike. Uh, you know, if, if somebody needs a saw, he might open his jacket and pull one out. You know, Lou is capable of stuff like that. Uh, but it's the crosstalk routines, I think, more than anything else. Uh, do you agree, Matthew? I do, yes. Uh, um, so, in fact, let's let's rush straight on to the examples because uh, my, my first uh, selection is one of their signature routines. I felt, in all fairness, I had to include one of their trademark barnstormers. But rather than some of the better-known ones like Who's On First or The Mustard Routine, I've opted for this. Um, it's a lovely example of Bud not trying to swindle Lou, but to simply frustrate him, seemingly for the hell of it. The routine is called Jonah and the Whale, and in preference to its excursions on film, I've selected this version of it from their 1950s TV show. Let's get started with the show. Let's do some funny stuff. What funny stuff? You know, let's tell something. Well, we don't uh, we don't tell jokes. We, In fact, we have no jokes. We tell ru uh, ru routines, sort of uh, stories. And... We have no jokes. No, that's right. You're I, right. I was telling you. But I have a joke. You, ha you have a what? I have a joke. Where'd you get it? I tell a joke. Where'd you get the joke? I wrote it myself. You wrote a joke? Brand new one. Wrote it yourself? Nobody's ever heard it before. Is it funny? It's clean. Yeah, I don't mean that. Is it funny? <laughs> so. And it's brand new? Yes. You think the folks out there will like it? I think so. It's a, it's, it's a fish story. How long will it take to tell it? A couple of seconds. The only thing is, you ain't got nothing to say in it. You might as well get a chair and sit down because you don't open your mouth once through the whole thing. But it's funny. Very cute. And you wrote it. Yeah, but you keep your mouth shut. You don't get... You no. got nothing to say whatsoever. No, I don't have to say anything as long as you wrote it. It's about a whale, a ship, and Jonah. And it's funny. Yeah. And you wrote it. Yeah, now don't talk no, no more. Well, go ahead. Let's hear it. Let's now, see don't say funny. another word. No. As okay. long as it's funny. It's funny! And it's brand new. Now, keep your mouth shut. Go ahead. Let's hear it. Once upon a time, there was a whale. What kind of a whale? <laughs> you see, that's what I mean. You got to keep your mouth shut. You ain't got oh. nothing to say in this. Well, all right, no, it's not. A you don't point. have to ask me what kind of whale it is because I don't know what kind of whale it was. All right, let's forget about. How do I know what kind of whale right, it is? Don't shout now. What do you think I do? Belong to whale gang or something? I know the whale. So I a whale. All right. I asked you to keep your mouth shut tonight. Go ahead. Well, keep it shut. Now this whale was in the ocean. What ocean? This so. What ocean? I think the folks would like to know where this took place, don't you think? Go ahead. Pick out ocean what I care. That's immaterial to me. All right, immaterial ocean. Oh, what kind of ocean? Now, the whale was in the immaterial ocean. It was minus own business, but it's following a ship. What ship? This ship. What ship? <laughs> what ship? I told you, you don't say nothing in the story. I do the whole story by myself. You're telling it, but I just... But you keep opening your mouth. Now, keep a shot. I only ask you what kind of a ship. A ship, a plain everyday ship that swims in the water. You mean a swim ship? Yeah. <laughs> now, the whale was following a swim ship because... Who ever heard of a swim ship? I don't know, Lou. That's your you story. Please, keep your mouth away, please. All right, go ahead. You're getting me aggravated now. Take it easy, take it easy. Go ahead. Now, the ship was following the whale what? because... Now I got the ship following the, the whale. whale was following the, ship. <laughs> the whale was following the ship yeah. because the whale was hungry. Naturally. Now, Captain Jonah was the captain of the boat, and he didn't want the whale to capsize the boat. What? He didn't want the whale to capsize the boat. Capsize. So he, he didn't want the whale to capsize the boat. Capsize. So he... Because he, you know what capsize means. I don't put in big words like that if I don't know what it means. Plus, I don't know what it means. He didn't want the whale what to capsize. What does cap it mean? Capsize. Capsize. 
That's a big word. Well, what does it mean? It's a good one. Well, what does it mean? Capsize. Capsize. The story should have been over. Well, what does it mean? Get it over with. Capsize. Capsize. Right. Seven and a quarter. Six oh, all right. Go ahead. So he didn't want the whale to six or seven eighths the boat. Yeah. So what did he, he Captain Jill was a brave man, so he threw, the, he threw the whale over a barrel of apples. What kind of apples? And, and just as soon as he, he... What kind of apples? I guess you're not tend to about me. Well, what kind of apples? What's so harmful about that? Plain, I... everyday apples. Well, apples that grow out of trees. Well, there's all kinds of apples, Lou. There's Baldwin apples, there's Frost apples. And... Crab apples! Well, tell the people. He's not being mad at you, right, folks. Take it easy, take it easy, take it easy. Come on now, get it over with. So the whale ate the apples. Yeah, ate the apple. Now, Captain Jonah realized that the whale was still going to capsize the boat. Don't ask me again about that thing. All right. So when, he, when the whale ate the apples, he was still hungry. So then Captain Jonah threw him over a stool. What kind of stool? Who said that? Me, in case you asked. Oh, what? The three-legged hemp stool. So the whale ate the stool. Now, the whale ate the apples and the whale ate the stool. And the whale was still hungry. In other words, his appetite had not been appeased. Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty good word, All right, too. Well, go ahead. Let's hear the finish this. So Captain Jonah, being a very brave man, he didn't want the whale to capsize the boat, and he wanted to save all the passengers mm-hmm. on the boat. So what did he do? I don't know. I'm going to tell you what he Just did. Keep quiet. Go ahead. He sacrificed himself. Yeah. He threw a beautiful jackknife dive right off the boat into the mouth of the whale. Mm-hmm. Now, the whale opened up his mouth, and he swallowed Captain Jonah. He swallowed the apples, and he uh, swallowed the stool, and then the whale swam wait, away. Wait a minute, Lou. Three years later, they caught that very same whale down here in the bay. Just a minute. And they cut him open. Wait a minute, minute, Lou. And what do you think they found? Wait a minute, just one minute. One more interruption. Now, he says something here, then I tell you the funny answer. One more interruption. (laughs) Uh, Lou, you're not coming out here in front of this intelligent audience. Millions and millions of people listening and watching. You're not coming out and trying to get away with that old weeds, that old pun about the time they, they caught the whale and they cut him open and there they found Jonah seated on that stool selling those apples three for a nickel, are you? That's not the story you intended to come out here and open up the show with. Now, wait a minute. Folks, I'm really sorry. I want to apologize. It couldn't be that story. Because every little schoolboy knows that story. That's right. And he said it was brand new. No one had ever heard about it. And... But I'm sorry. I apologize. Now, you go ahead and tell the folks what they found when they cut the whale open. I say, tell the folks what they found when they cut the whale open. You, you do know the answer, don't you? Hmm? Feel good? You know, I, I, I thought it was a build-up to that old wheeze, but it couldn't be that because every little schoolboy knows that joke. <laughs> Got the wheel open there. They found Jonah seated on the stool. Like, Lou, 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 come here a minute now. We're not finished. I want you to tell the folks. Well, I have to say real quick um, that uh, the finish to that sketch really needs to be seen uh, to be appreciated. It does, yes, it does. But uh, hopefully, people will uh, will go and find it on on YouTube. Um, in the book, I mentioned that that's not one of my favorite routines. I know that you like that mm. one more than I do. I always felt that yeah. if the punchline were stronger to the joke, it might be better. But it's it's such a it's such a lame joke. Yeah, that's that's why it's good. Yeah, no, I, I know what you're saying, but it's just to me, it's the, like if it the, had the a, pun- a laugh, you know. The punchline. 
Oh, God. oh, I, th- I. Th- that's interesting. I think the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. I think the punchline has to be so uh, crushing when it's delivered by Bud. Right. If Bud gets a laugh with it, then it would be like he's stealing the laugh or something. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I mean, I get it. it. I, I just feel like, yeah. I feel like as as a comedy writer, I feel like mm. had the joke elicited a belly laugh from the audience, it would have been a far more successful bit rather than, mm. you know. Okay, but you do need to see the ending. You do need to see the ending. I I did have a very specific reason for for selecting that, but before I uh, explain what that was, uh, Noah, before any any hard and fast verdict, um, any any first impressions or observations on that? Yeah, I think this this routine feels to me like a kind of slow motion car wreck. You know, um, like at the very beginning. <laughs> You kind of, you see it happening. And I think at least from my exposure to Abbott and Costello in the last two weeks through the clips you've selected and also some YouTube rabbit hauling on my own, this seems to be a fairly common thing with them. Uh, the premise is established early on and you kind of see, okay, I, I see where this is going. This is going to succeed or fail based on its ability to wring further twists out of a, a premise that's established immediately. So... Costello is going to try to tell this story. Abbott is going to harass him with constant uh, requests for clarification. And you you just, or at least I felt, you know, right at the very beginning. And, and we're going to get to some kind of punchline at the end of this that Costello will get no satisfaction from because the air has been let completely out of his story by Abbott. I think I do uh, like them slightly more in this kind of routine. Um, the v- obviously very familiar, very um, proficient, um, polished verbal stuff that they had done many, many times. You know, there is a confidence and a professionalism about the way they do this stuff uh, that I, I do prefer a lot to the stuff I've seen that has them in more situation comedy kind of uh, scenes. Yeah, I think I, w- I would agree with that as well. Um, what I like about this and, and a lot of their, their dialogue stuff is when you think about what what Bud is doing. Uh, dominating, though loose clowning always is, I think Bud is, is really often the X factor in, the, in these routines. Um, for instance, in, in, in Who's On First, what really engines that routine, I think, isn't so much Lou's uh, desperate attempts to make sense of what he's being told. It's more Bud's absurd blindness to the obvious cause of the confusion and, and how easy it would be for him to to put it right. And I think this r- routine in particular points to uh, an absence in the Marx repertoire that's rarely noted, I think, and much to be regretted. We often discuss how the Marxes pair with each other, how Chico with Groucho is different to Chico with Harpo, how rare and sweet it is when Harpo and Groucho are paired, and so on. But what seems to me one of the most significant gaps in the Marx record, are any extended examples of Chico appearing with a straight man. Uh, Indeed, as we know, Groucho serves as his straight man on on the most celebrated occasions, but that dynamic is always going to be different to something like, say, uh, Chico and Roscoe W. Chandler. Those characters Chico tends to encounter in tandem with Harpo, and it's Harpo's manic physicality that sets the comedic terms. But imagine a long dialogue sketch, something like Wire Duck, but with Chandler on the receiving end rather than the more resourceful Groucho. What might Chico be like then? I suspect he would be annoying for the fun of it, much like Bud is here. 
And I think that Bud's line, oh, you mean a swim ship, for my money, has uh, a very authentically Marxian stamp in its sudden escalation of the comic assault into the realms of, of overt absurdity. That's why I chose that. Mm. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Those burlesque sketches, if you ever talk to a burlesque comic, and I, I, I was lucky enough to talk to a few, um, those are like, it's like the Bible. It's, it's like, it's like uh, those sketches are so dear to them and considered such classics uh, that they don't mess with them much. You could watch one comedian, one set of comedians doing one routine, watch a, another set of comedians doing the same routine, and it's pretty much going to be the same thing. But that's why Abbott and Costello flew into the stratosphere. They took these classic routines, these routines that really have been living since maybe minstrel days in the mid-1800s. A lot of the jokes they used were from the mid-1800s, believe it or not. March Brothers too, by the way. I just find it fascinating that they take these familiar routines that were done a thousand and one times, and they make them so fresh, so funny, uh, and they put their spin on it, thanks to uh, John Grant was uh, a burlesque straight man for years, had an uh, encyclopedic knowledge of these routines uh, going all the way back into the 1800s. And he was uh, hired by Bud and Lou early on in their careers to adapt these great burlesque sketches into their situations, into their films, into their, um, ra- no, not radio. He didn't write for them in radio, Matthew. I think it was just the films hmm. he wrote for. Hopefully, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you'd be watching a film and, you know, Bud and Lou would be walking down the street and all of a sudden something would, you know, a, a routine would would pop up. I guess the most notorious uh, version of that is in Landis's uh, forward about um, Susquehanna hats all of a sudden coming out of the blue and I know Lou came in one day and just said, come on, we're doing this. <laughs> and they did it. And thank God they did it. So, Noah, uh, are, you, are, you, are you sticking around for the ride or have you jumped ship already? <laughs> I'm sticking around for the ride. Uh, I'll tell you um, something that stops me from quite loving this routine. And it's something that uh, seems to be true of uh, a lot of their other material, too, is I keep thinking to myself, what is Bud Abbott doing and why is he doing it? You know, uh, with Costello, okay, his character is a fool, you know, and so that explains everything um, to the extent that it needs to be explained. Why does Abbott persecute him this way? What's in it for Abbott? (laughs) You you said, Matthew, a moment ago that he was being annoying for the fun of it. And that is all the reason anybody needs, especially in this kind of comedy. But I I just don't get much joy from these guys. And I mean, I don't see much joy from them is what I mean. And with the Marx Brothers, you can always ask why, why are they doing this? What could it possibly be? Um, But I think we who love the Marx Brothers really know what that answer is. And it was best articulated to me once by Kathy Beale, who I've quoted on this before. She's always said their motivation is joy. The Marx Brothers are destroying the premise, the room, the situation for the sheer joy of it. Uh, but Bud Abbott doesn't seem to me to be having a great time. He, he's angry, he's barking and screaming at, at Lou. Yeah. I, I don't quite, and that stands between my uh, me and the ability to relate to this stuff. What's Abbott so upset about? Mustard goes with a hot dog. Okay, okay. Uh, Certainly. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> may I say something? Please. Um, 
this is interesting because I have I have a dear friend. His name is Scott Ratner. I took him to see a screening of. Oh, you know Scott. He's a friend of the yeah. Council podcast. Um, I took him to see Who Done It uh, on the big screen, which I consider to be one of their best films, and um, he enjoyed it. But I have to say that his que- his one question fascinates fascinated me. He said, "Why is Bud Abbott there?" And I was like. Well, I mean, they're a team, of course, blah, blah, blah. And he went, no, 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 no. Why does he put Lou into these situations? Why does he risk Lou's life sometimes? Sometimes he he pushes into situations where he knows there's going to be bodily harm. Sometimes he causes the bodily harm. I mean, he really is uh, an unusual character, to say the least. (laughs) Um, But I, I only had one answer, and I say it in the book. They were a burlesque comedy team. They come from burlesque. And now, now that's not going to uh, sit right with a lot of people who maybe don't know the history, but a burlesque comedy team was made up of a an immigrant, even if he was American. Uh, now, let me explain that. This comedy that Abbott and Costello do, these wordplay routines, the uh, Chico Groucho routines, all of those are based on immigration, on the on the. Uh, uh, the experience of the immigrant in this country, misunderstanding simple words, turning it into a whole thing. That was Weber and Fields back in the, you know, around the turn of the last century. Um, so that's where you have Bud Abbott. That's where he fits in. And unfortunately, it's not always a, a, an easy fit. It's not always easy to watch, I have to say. Uh, there's that moment in Pardon My Sarong, remember Matthew, where he comes in and he hands Lou the gun. They're all starving and he says, here, you might as well kill yourself because, you know, you're going to starve to death anyway. And then leaves him to kill himself. Can you imagine any other comedy team? Uh, you know, <laughs> here, Stan, take this gun. Thank you, Wally. You know, it's just, no, <laughs> yeah. I don't. I, I don't Maybe Olsen and Johnson. <laughs> no, definitely Olsen and Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> Guns were like the third member of their comedy team. Yes, but uh, um, but anyway, that's the uh, that's the whole thing about Abbott and Costello. It's the experience. It's the old experience of the immigrant coming over here, being taken by the sharpie, being taken advantage of in almost every way, and that is their relationship. Occasionally, it changes with the film. You know, sometimes Bud is very kind to Lou. Sometimes he's looking out for him. Sometimes he runs back to save him. You know, so you take it with a grain of salt. But I understand that argument very well. I will say I I enjoy Bud Abbott's presence for the most part. Um, In fact, more than Lou Costello's. I mean, I find Abbott is vocally very interesting, great voice, uh, obviously great timing. Um, you know, I, I, I do find Abbott um, a good presence, um, but th- this uh, to me is a... A baffling one. A somewhat baffling <laughs> one. Uh, yeah, or it's like, or sometimes I find myself thinking, well, why am I not finding this more funny? And sometimes the answer has to do with Abbott's specific attitude. Mm-hmm. I can understand that entirely. Um, and I'm hearing lately... And this is interesting because you you repeated it now. Um, lately, in uh, retrospect, a lot of people are looking back and they find Bud funnier than Lou, which I find I, very interesting. Yeah. I remember even in my early days when, to me, Abbott and Costello were who's on first. Mm-hmm. I, I remember finding it interesting that, of course, Abbott's the straight man. But in who's on first, very often the big laughs come after Abbott's lines. And now, to some extent, I think if a straight man 
delivers a straight line and then the comedian responds to it and gets a laugh they've earned that laugh together it, there's yeah. no oh, ass- yeah. assigning it to the other guy that's but it is interesting routine. that's a yeah. tandem routine definitely but but it is interesting how often abbott is the one who delivers at least in that routine and i think elsewhere too the line that gets the he's on you know he's on third we're not talking about him and right, that's right. where the laugh comes he's very proficient he's his timing is is from the gods and like Groucho said, he was probably the greatest straight man who ever lived, as far as I'm, I'm concerned, anyway. I've never seen a better one. Um, but it's Lou's reactions to Bud's absurdity that makes me laugh. It's, it's, to me, Lou is a great actor. Lou could break your heart. He, he, was, he had the Chaplin thing. He was able to do most anything, most anything. Uh, but his reactions to Bud, like I say in the book, our book, The Annotated Abbott and Costello, um, <laughs> they are both really good actors. The premise of who's on first is one of the most absurd you will ever trip over in your lifetime. Really? His name is who? His name is I don't know. Really? Steve Stolyer, uh, that uh, grand old woman of uh, writing, he um, said <laughs> he, he finds it very difficult to sit through uh, who's on first because of the premise. He can't wrap his. He can't. He can't let go of the fact that it's such a contrived uh, premise. But the boys take this contrivance, and you believe every single word. And that's where the humor comes from. It's their acting ability. So next time you watch it, look at it. Look at it that way. You know, you believe every word. One thing that has occurred to me with who's on first and and other things too is that. Abbott, to some extent, must, um, if, if we are to think of him as a character, uh, he must want the confusion because he could avoid it altogether. It wouldn't be that hard to say, no, no, listen, the man's name is who. I mean, that's all you'd have to it say. It would be easy. No, yeah. it's true. Yeah. And that's and, where people and, like, what's his name? Uh, Le- uh, Leslie Hallowell can't get past that, that aspect of it. But anyway, go ahead. I think those kind of, those are the kind of gripes that, only set in when you're not that amused. You know, most of the time you get through who's on first. Yeah. It's so rollicking and, and impressive. You know, you don't have time to question those things. It's only after, you know, many, many repeated viewings or listenings that maybe you start thinking about that stuff. But I, but who's on first is a very golden example. I, I think in general, um, one of the things that makes the Marx brothers so exceptional, um, is the way their work um, responds inherently to that complaint. Oh, well, why wouldn't you just do this more easily? The Marx Brothers rarely put you through a long mistaken identity thing or like, oh, this character doesn't understand and this one does and how long is it going to take us? To, how many mm-hmm. times are we going to have to go around before we're the done? Old farce question, the old farce question. You know, why doesn't yeah. somebody just talk to another person on stage? We, <laughs> we can all go home. Uh, right, right. <laughs> but I was thinking about that aspect today. I was actually thinking about the Marx Brothers' makeup. They are not like Abbott and Costello in that sense. Abbott and Costello were of their time. The Marx Brothers were of every time. They're wearing Commedia dell'arte uh, clothing. They're wearing clown clothes, you know, in, in the modern world, yeah. which I find fascinating and just as confusing as Bud Abbott. Because why are they dressed like this? Why are they acting like this? Why are they the only ones in the entire world who look like this and act like this? Okay? So they are like 
the Marx Brothers are fantasy to me. The Marx Brothers are clowns, basically. They dress like clowns. You know, again, I hate to bring up Stolyer again, but he, um, he said that he couldn't watch later day Chico or Harpo because he thought it was pathetic. Them hanging on to these costumes, these clown costumes that they put on in vaudeville, and they were still wearing in the 1960s. Um, but I accept it. I totally accept that part of them. But Abbott and Costello, you have to understand, they were part of that world. They were part of the modern world. They did get into these situations. They did dress like real people. They were real people. They were just a little dumber, and, and they tended to get more confused, I guess, and a little more abusive to each other. But, um, you know, I, I compared to the Stooges, and I'll say it, dare I say it, even Laurel and Hardy, I think, were more violent than Abbott and Costello. I've never seen more violent gags than I did in a Laurel and Hardy movie. Much more. You know? Anyway, yeah. I'll let you guys talk for a while. <laughs> okay, well, Noah's still on board, so uh, your turn, Nick. Have at him. Yes, hi, Noah. How are you? <laughs> oh, Nick Santamaria. I didn't you see you there. Oh, my goodness. I didn't notice you without a grease, grease paint mustache. Um, okay, so I chose, uh, I chose the uh, burlesque routines as they were seated at a restaurant table in a movie called The Noose Hangs High. They do a string of burlesque routines that they had done probably way back in the 1920s. I'm sure Bud was doing them in the 1920s. Um, but it is just a string of one burlesque routine after another. And by the end, you're kind of breathless. I hate to say that now because Noah's not going to be breathless, but still. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> It'll be wheezing. Maybe, maybe a slight wheeze. <laughs> okay. So this is the uh, uh, dinner table scene from uh, The Noose Hangs High, one of their better films. Well, eat up. Eat by this, our last meal. Okay. This is really a gorgeous place. Wonderful. Look at that wall over there. Mm-hmm. Isn't that a beautiful wall? Beautiful. You know what that wall reminds me of? What? This one over here. Oh, stop. Mm-hmm. Walls are walls. Suppose you walked over there and you bored a hole in that wall. Okay, I walk over there and I bore a hole in the wall. Why? Why should you go over there and bore a hole in that wall? I'm not boring a hole in the wall. Why should you go over there and bore a hole in that wall? Look, Ted, you said to me, suppose you walk over there and bore a hole in the wall. But I was dopey enough to say I'll go and bore a hole in the wall, but you're not going to put that blame on me. That makes no difference. I don't go around boring holes in walls in restaurants. That's what I want to know. If I want to get out of here, I don't have to get out to a hole in the wall. Uh, you see that? They got exits here if I want to get out. Mm-hmm. E X I T out. What makes you so dumb? Oh, it just comes to me naturally. Sure. Suppose you walk into a baseball field. Uh, what teams are playing? I don't know. Then what are you doing in that baseball field? I don't know. You got me you in there and I'll get me out. Look, what is the first thing you buy in a baseball field? A hot dog. A hot dog. Without mustard? Mm-hmm. Mustard goes with a hot dog. Not with mine. Mustard was made for the hot dog. Now, but I look, I don't like mustard. Mustard and the hot dog go together. Let them go together. I don't want to spoil any romance. Do you, do you know they spend millions of dollars every year to put up factories just to manufacture mustard? Do you know those factories employ thousands and thousands of men just to manufacture mustard? You know those men take care of thousands of families and homes, all on account of mustard? And you, just because you don't like mustard, what do you want them to do? Close those factories down and put all those people out of work? Do you mean to sit there and tell me just because I don't eat mustard, I'm going to close down the mustard factory? No, wait a minute. No, 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 Are you no. trying to tell me that those thousands of people are making one little jar of mustard like this no. just for me? No, wait a minute. You don't understand. Well, if the eye, you can tell them not to make any more because I'm not going to eat it. All right, yeah. so you don't like it. I like Worcestershire, Shears, Shorts. You like what? Worcestershire, Shears, Shorts. Worcestershire, Shears, Shorts. You can't even say it. 
But I don't, you don't go for mustard. You don't like mustard, huh? I don't like it. No, I like Worcestershire cheese, George. You don't know why you dislike it. Look, I'm not going to put nobody out of work. I told you before, I don't put nobody out of work. All right, forget about it. Okay. Sit here like a big dummy. I don't know. I don't know why I hang around with you. You can't answer a question. You. I, I, you, you said that I was putting thousands of people out That's of work. That's what you're doing. I'm not putting anybody out of work. Men walking the streets, husbands walking the streets, doing nothing. I'm not putting any husbands out of work. You don't even know what a husband is. A husband is what's left of a sweetheart after the nerve has been killed. Right, listen, no remarks out of you. I ask you simple little questions and you say nothing at all. Why don't you ask me a little easy question? Will you answer it? A tiny one. So, suppose you had $5 in one pants pocket and $10 in the other pants pocket. What would you have? Somebody else's pants on. The, yeah, you see, you won't answer I ain't the got question. got no money. What are you asking me? Those kind I'm of not people. asking you well, that. Well, don't yell at me. It's only quiet, quiet. Look, here. Say you're 40 years old. Now, wait a minute, just a minute. Who's 40? Just say, pretend I'm you're... I'm a boy. All right. Pretend I'm you're... a little boy. All right, wait a minute. Look, pretend I'm you're... I'm 40. Pretend you're 40 years old. And you're in love with a little girl, say, 10 years old. All right, this one's gonna be a pip. Well, now, wait a minute till I finish it. Now, I'm going around with a 10-year-old girl. Well, wait a minute. You I... got a good idea where I'm gonna wind up. Will you wait a minute, please? <laughs> now, you're 40. She's 10. You're four times as old as that girl. Now, you couldn't marry her, could you? Not unless I come from the mountains. Uh, never mind that. I'm asking you one little simple question. You want to answer it? Oh, go ahead. You're 40. She's 10. You're four times as old as that girl. Can't marry her, so you wait. Oh, you wait five years. I wait five years. Now you're 45. The little girl is 15. Now you're only three times as old as that little girl, right? Huh? So you wait 15 years more. Now the little girl is 30. You're 60. Now you're only twice as old as that little girl. She's catching up. Yes, yes. Now here's the question. How long do you have to wait before you and the little girl are the same age? Now, go ahead. Now, there's a very simple question. Think hard. I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. What's ridiculous I mean, about if I keep waiting for that girl, she'll pass me up. What do you mean? She'll wind up all in my What are you talking and about? she'll have to wait for me. Why should she wait for you? I was nice enough to wait for her. Oh, stop. Well, she thinks she is anyway. If she don't want to wait for me, I don't have to marry her. Marry her? If she's a nice girl. I'm wait a minute. Do you know this girl? No. Then why should you marry a girl you don't even know? I asked you to ask me a simple one, didn't I? A little one. Right, right here. No, 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 take it easy. Take it easy. You're going to jail fast enough. Don't get excited. Ask me a all simple one. Right, Every time I talk to you, I ask get a headache. Ask me that question slow again. Headaches is all I get when I talk to you. Why don't you take aspirin? Take an aspirin? You're telling me to take an aspirin? Let's go for a headache. Have you a license to practice medicine? Huh? Have you a license to practice medicine? Doctors all over the world, they study, they spend their lives. To go to college, to become doctors, and you tell me to take an aspirin. When one friend has a headache, another friend tells him to take an aspirin. That's all. It's a simple little thing. You have no business. Don't take the aspirin. Hmm. <laughs> oh, I should go around with a headache, huh? There's a fine pal. Why don't you fine. take a little bromozilter? Never mind. I'll take what I want. Here. Say you're in the Grand Central uh, Station, New York City. Hmm. Right? Will you stop that, please? Put it down. You're in the Grand Central uh, Station. Yeah. Um. Uh, you buy a ticket. Where are you going? I'm not going anywhere. What are you buying a ticket for? I'm not buying a ticket. And what are you doing in the depot? Well, you are, you see. Same as the baseball game. No. Now you got me in a depot. I what am I doing a... in a depot? What are you blaming me for all these things? Well, did you know where you were going when you went in? I don't know. You put me in this station. Don't blame everything on me. Now that I'm there, I'll have to find some place to go. Find some place to go. I'll go bye-bye. Where is bye-bye? Where is bye-bye? Where is bye-bye? Oh, that way some place. What's over there? Bye-bye. Oh, stop. Will you please talk sense? I'll go to Baltimore. I don't want to go, but I'll go. Baltimore? That'll sound Why bad. Baltimore? Why did you have to pick out Baltimore? Of all the towns in the United States, why did you have to pick out Baltimore? 
What's the matter with Philadelphia? I got friends in Baltimore. Suppose you had friends in Philadelphia. Then I go to Philadelphia. And what happens to your friends in Baltimore? I'm not talking to them anymore. Suppose you were married, had a wife, and your wife was in Philadelphia. Then I go to Chicago. Oh, go ahead, eat your shrimp. Go ahead, eat it. And that's that. <laughs> Boy, I think that was a prime example of what Bud did, what we were just talking about, just baiting him into these impossible arguments, you know. But that's just one aspect. As I was listening to this and looking at uh, Noah's dour uh, countenance, uh, <laughs> I realized. Uh, <laughs> first of all, I really, I really think that uh, um, we're dwelling on basically their burlesque sketches. Where I have to say that, as an Abbott and Costello fan, almost fanatic, um, it's that's part of what they do. To me, that's just part of what they do. That's what got them out there. But then all of a sudden they started doing these films that were so much fun and so entertaining and showed off so much of their acting uh, chops that I realized there was so much more to them than that radio show or later on the television show. The movies are what show uh, uh, show us what they can really do, as far as I'm concerned. I, I tend to agree with that. I, I think it's fair to say that that's... A minority opinion, even among fans, mm-hmm. though. Would you I think? I do. People love the the, the fans yeah. love the TV show a lot more than I do. Mm. I love the Colgate live shows. Those are are priceless yeah. to me. Priceless. They should be preserved for all time. But the show to me looks very um, thrown together. The first season is a lot of fun. Granted, uh, second season quite a slog <laughs> to get through. You know, Matthew. I remember when you were trying to get through it. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to write a chapter on it, and then I thought, I know, I won't write a chapter on it. <laughs> and uh, and then then the day got a lot easier. But let, I think we really should find out if, if Noah is still breathing Noah, are you still there? Are you, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Take a pulse. What just Take happened? Take a pulse. <laughs> well, uh, of, the, of the material that you gave me to watch, uh, of all the Abbott and Costello stuff I've, I've taken in in the last couple of weeks to prepare for this, uh, this scene was by far my favorite thing that I saw. Wow. Oh. And I think that's exactly for the reasons you're saying. that It's seemingly the thing that I like the most about Abbott and Costello is this, this kind of very precision, very, um, very professional. These guys know this material inside and out. Um, you know, it's just undeniably impressive from the point of view of comedy craft that said, I still, I still didn't, in, don't enjoy it as much as I want to. I sort of want to like this more than I do. Um, I think part of what stands between it and me is the, the "what is Abbott doing?" question I raised earlier, which, which you referenced, Nick. Yeah, so often it seems like Abbott raises an issue, Costello responds to it, and Abbott attacks Costello as though he brought it up himself. You know, the, like boring a hole in the wall thing. You know. Right. Like Abbott raises that issue and he's like screaming at Costello about it two beats later. Um, and and again, if, if Abbott seemed to me to have a kind of mischievous Marx Brothers perverseness in, in if Abbott seemed to be enjoying himself, maybe I would enjoy it too. Um but he always seems grumpy. He always seems he angry. He always seems so angry and grumpy. Aggressive. Yeah. Where's Bye Bye? Oh, Jesus. Certainly. 
Yeah. You, know, yeah. you imagine in, in, on Christmas morning, Merry Christmas! You know, it's, it's just, he's just got that, that mood about him. I don't know. Yeah, he is a little one note. Um, and uh, I think, though, that the relentless density of the verbal material here keeps it moving. You know, I mean, I, I, I didn't. I didn't ever laugh out loud at any of this, but I enjoyed it. You know, the way you can let comedy sort of wash over you. Um, Sometimes you know, a smile will do. Yeah, they're, they're, you know, I appreciate the skill on display here. They do seem to me to be working very hard. Um, you know, there seems to be a lot of sweat in their yeah. comedy. Um, and sometimes yep. they seem to be kind of like racing and shouting their way through the material. Um, I don't know lose armpits in the films i think almost should get their own credit because yeah. they, uh, <laughs> he's he's never dry there yeah the man, the man worked himself to death i watch watch a, a live yeah. colgate show and you're watching a man working himself to death honestly he had a bad heart rivers of sweat yeah. coming oh, down yeah. his face working, yeah, that's, working like that's crazy. one way to go too i mean that that is a you know i mean oliver hardy often seemed to be working very hard Him too. um you know yeah. um but I, I guess um, with the stuff that appeals the most to me, their feeling is more effortless than effortful. Um, the Marx Brothers, um, who, and in a, in a way, I don't think it's fair to compare anyone to the Marx Brothers, but w with the Marx Brothers, um, never at their best, and rarely even when they're not at their best, do I have the sense like, boy, these guys are working hard. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that also kind of um, gets between me and enjoyment a little bit. Um, I don't know if that racing, that that um, sort of breakneck pace, um, you know, and it's not just that it's fast paced, which is true of lots of great comedy. Um, it seems like it's sort of faster than it needs to be, um, you know, just sort of getting these lines out um, as fast as possible. Um, is maybe that is just a question of keeping the energy and momentum going? Um, maybe it's to um, not give the audience too much of an opportunity to ask all the questions about the premise that mm -hmm. might occur. And also, of course, it's, it's, it's audiences that want to see girls. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's burlesque audiences that want the girls to come on. And you've got, you've got, to, you've got right. to keep them. You've got to get them by the throat. Okay. And keep I them. want to address yeah. the hardworking thing. Um, you know they didn't rehearse that. They sat down and did that. But they knew it. They know they, it like I mean, their names. Yeah. They know it okay. like their names. Now, there's one well, moment that's like there. rehearsing. Yeah, in a way, in a way. But the, there's one point there where I love, where um, Bud throws in, at, at random, he throws in, oh, you, you're giving me a headache. And Lou is talking, and then he says again, you're giving me a headache. That was Lou's cue to do the doctor thing. You know, I'll go for you an aspirin. To me, half the fun of Abbott and Costello is watching them cue each other. Sometimes it works, sometimes yeah. it doesn't, you know. But it's fascinating for a student of comedy to watch. Yes, no yep. question about that. And I, I've also gotten that from yeah. them just from having seen, you know, five or ten versions of Who's On First. And you can see, oh, they can they can inhabit this routine for, as I think you say in the book, they could do it for a minute, they could do it for 20 minutes. Uh, mm -hmm. It's it's a reality yeah. they lapse into. Um, that That's true. Um, and, and that is impressive about them. As I say in the book, if you think of those routines not so much as... as as scripts to learn, but as a as a as a route to follow, and what they know are the signposts. Mm -hmm. Yes, the keynotes. The keynotes. And once they get 
to each signpost, then they're off onto the next section of the road. But that's another interesting comparison to the Marx Brothers, uh, uh, but only in an opposite sense, is the sense that the Marx Brothers put such care into, well, everyone but Chico, um, put such care into their lines, into their dialogue, into their routines, uh, so much so that they went out and tested them, whereas Appen and Costello really didn't read the scripts. They would show up and say, all right, in this scene, we start here, and then we end up here, and we're going to throw what routine in the middle? Fine. Okay, let's go. That's how they worked. It was the opposite. It was the exact opposite. And I appreciate both. I appreciate that skill that the Marx Brothers have and the care they put into their material. But as a performer, I work more like Abbott and Costello, and I appreciate their way of working more, maybe because I come up from improv or whatever. But... uh, when we went in to do those Biffle and Schuster shorts, I didn't know what I was doing when I showed up that morning. I looked at the script a little bit during makeup, and Will and I would pretty much fill in the rest. But that's how Abbott and Costello worked. And I, I, I for me, I find that impressive. That's that's uh, just me, though. Okay, well, we're at the halfway point now, and, and I must things are panning out much as I thought I'm they sorry. might, which is to say that... <laughs> Which is to say that I I don't disagree with anything Noah has mm-hmm. said. I I agree with everything you've said Noah about Bud, about his mysteriousness, about his anger. Um, but but these are just things that for some reason uh, you know tickle me irresistibly. <laughs> um, I have with my uh, choices gone for not the not so much the classic. Um, uh, routines that you know that that are all structure, as as also ones that have interesting uh, acting opportunities in them as well, um, and that's certainly the case with 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 my next one. Uh, once again, it might seem like an illogical choice. It's a turkey sandwich and a cup of coffee from the film Keep Em Flying. Uh, now, this may be controversial because the routine is, at least in its fundamentals, lifted wholesale from Laurel and Hardy's short Men of War. Uh, but again. It's in the differences that we find the qualities I most want to isolate in Bud and Lou's style. In the earlier films, Stan and Ollie are sailors who want to impress two girls at a soda fountain, but they only have enough money for three drinks and don't want to admit to their lack of resources in front of the girls. So it's decided that Ollie will order a drink for the girls and himself, Stan will turn down the offer to have one as well, and then he and Ollie will surreptitiously share the one drink. But Stan repeatedly fails to follow Ollie's reasoning, and to Ollie's mounting fury, repeatedly takes him up on his offer. Here's Bud and Lou's version, similar but tellingly different. Won't you boys have something to eat? Yes, ma'am. I would. Yeah, please, please. What do you mean, yes, ma'am? We've only got a quarter, you know that. Do you understand? What's wrong with you? What's happened to you? Well, a quarter, we can get something to eat. Well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll order a turkey sandwich and a cup of coffee, see? And uh, I'll give you half. But if she asks you if you want anything, you just say, no, I don't care for anything. And if she asks me if I want something, I say, I don't care for nothing. That's right. Give me one, put something over. No, 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 we're not not putting anything over. Gonna try that slicker. That's all we got is a quarter. Hey, Uh, she'll think for a couple of big shots. That's a boy. I don't care for nothing. That's right. Uh, Give me a turkey sandwich and a cup of coffee, please. What do you have? I don't care for nothing. Oh, go ahead, have something. Give me a turkey sandwich. I just get through telling you. I refuse once, didn't I? That's I, enough. I know, but we only got a quarter. I mean, but the waitress says to me, go ahead, have something. I said, I don't care for nothing. Then you never, say, go ahead. Never mind that. You can't order. Never mind what I say. No matter I, how much you coax me? No matter how much I coax you, you just say, I don't want anything. I'll say I'll fill it up, that's all. That's all, we only got a quarter. I ain't, but I say I will. Well, say that. Okay. So now I'll give you half of my turkey sandwich. Yeah, I don't care for nothing. Uh, that turkey sandwich and a cup of coffee, please. 
And what do you have? I don't care for nothing. Oh, go ahead, have something. Go on, have something. Come on, you, you, you're in here to eat, right? Yeah. Go ahead, order something. Give me some ham and eggs. What did I just get through telling you? What do you keep coaxing me Wait for? A, just a minute. We've only got a quarter. I know, but don't keep saying, go ahead, take something. I say, I don't Never care mind. what you say, go ahead, Shh, take never something. Never mind, never mind what I say. Just don't order anything. How are you going to pay for it? I'm filled up. I don't know if That's I'm up. different. That's no all. matter how much I coach you, you don't want it. I'm deaf. I don't say right, anything. quiet. You want a sandwich. You can't pay for two turkey sandwiches. Now, come on. I don't care for nothing. You don't want anything. Uh, that turkey sandwich and a cup of coffee, please. Yes. Thanks. And what do you have? I don't care for nothing. Oh, sure you do. Now, stop bashing me. I don't care for nothing. That's all. I'm not in the mood to eat. You just told me that you were hungry. I know. I told you a lot of things. But I ain't going to eat. That's all. Well, are you hungry? I beg your pardon, miss, but I'm not hungry. You are hungry. Now, look, you're in a restaurant. What do people go to a restaurant for? Not me. I'm just what in here. What do people go to a restaurant for? Sometimes I wonder. They go there to eat. Yeah, eat. That's what you're here That's for. That's a wonderful word, eat. Well, all right, order something. I'm not hungry. Now, listen. You want people to think I'm a cheapskate around here? Well, go on, order something. Order something small. Give me small steak. But I just, but I just get through telling you, huh? What do you keep coaxing me for? Never mind that coaxing. No matter how much I coax you, you don't want anything. Now sit down there and behave yourself. But the turkey sandwich and a cup of coffee, please. Turkey sandwich and a cup of coffee. Yes. Yes. Sir. He don't care for anything. Yes. Thanks a lot. <laughs> um, now, what I like here, once again, is that we've got Bud torturing Lou <laughs> not only for no no clear reason as before but even in defiance of his of his own best interests um the subterfuge is less imperative anyway because there's no girls they're trying to impress uh Lou does get the idea um and each time gives Bud the reaction he wants but for some <laughs> reason Bud keeps <laughs> tormenting him more and more each time then making it an overt show of what's really going on straight afterwards and it and it really does remind me of when the marxists do things in unnecessarily complicated or self-destructive ways um even when their interests are clearly advanced by doing things, doing things properly like Groucho's call to the Florida medical board uh Noah? Yeah, uh, um, there are. <laughs> Whenever a sentence starts with "yeah," um, yeah, guys. Oh, I, uh, and if you could, folks, his, he looks like he's at the dentist right now. By the way, that's what everyone. Okay. You mean the W.C. Fields movie? <laughs> Have you ever had this toothpaste before? <laughs> I think there are. Uh, undoubtedly funny moments here. Um, there, there are incidental things here that are funny to me, but it does have that diminishing returns problem. Uh, the first time, you know, Costello fails to not order something, it's it's funny. The next time, it's a little less funny. By the third time, I'm thinking, how long is this sketch? Uh, so that's, that's part wow. of it. <laughs> uh, an, uh, yeah. Another thing... I like it more each time. <laughs> Me too. Every time I see it, it gets better. I think the, the it's possible that the ingredient it would need to make me feel that way about it is the same thing I was talking about before. Some sense that Abbott is getting off on this. <laughs> Some sense that Abbott is, is enjoying us. If Bud Abbott seemed to be having a Groucho or Chico or Harpo-like delight in what he's doing to Costello, then then maybe... Uh, but he doesn't. He seems like a man at work, you know? And mm -hmm. uh, so there's that. I, I also think, um, <laughs> it seems to me from the, the material I've watched uh, lately, which is two 
or three, almost three entire films, as well as the individual clips. So I, I've spent some time with them in, in the last uh, week or so. And um, it seems to me that when the material, when the verbal material is extremely dense and it's basically talk, uh, Herman Mankiewicz style, two guys against a brick wall talking, uh, that's when Abbott and Costello appeal to me the most. And I think part of it is because those uh, routines provide Lou with the fewest opportunities for uh, mugging, um, simpering, blubbering, for these sort of hyperbolic enactments of fear or panic or shock, or in this case, hunger. I, 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 it really, I, I'm so sorry to say it because it's the opposite of the reaction I wanted to have and expected to have. I was really looking forward to like, Oh, it's going to turn out that I love Abbott and Costello movies, and there's like forty of them. I, I mean, I was excited about it, but I—he does not amuse me. Um, I find the spectacle of Lou Costello trying to Costello, Costello. yeah, yeah, the spectacle of Lou Costello trying to be cute turns me off. Um, and I wish, I stay wish, away it, from Jack and the Beanstalk. I wish I wish this weren't true, and I wish even if this is the case, I wish I could explain it more adequately. I'm, I'm not sure what it is. I just mm-hmm. don't buy him. I, I don't believe him at all. It's very interesting, very very interesting, Noah, because I find him to be maybe well. First of all, he's a better actor than any of the Marx Brothers as far as acting. You know, I never uh, uh, there was. I may have met us, mentioned this before, but Jackie Gleason wrote an article for uh, the TV Guide here in the States. And uh, he mentions how most of the great comedians are great actors as well. One of the ones he pointed out uh, as not being a great actor was Groucho Marx. And I really, I was offended at the time, but as I got older and became more of an actor myself, I realized he was right. Groucho was not a good actor. He was good at being Groucho. Um, Costello proves himself during the run of their films from the very first one to the very last one. Not only can you see progress, uh, in his acting skills and in his motion picture technique. Um, but he actually becomes a very fine actor. Uh, he could make, like I said earlier on, I, I could watch a movie like little giant or the time of their lives, which are, um, unusual, atypical for them. They're split up, uh, for one thing, but lose work in those films is as good as anyone's during that era. He, he, he can make you cry. And that's the best thing you could say about uh, uh, a comedian who acts. If he can make you cry, like he can make you laugh, to me, that's genius. That's where genius falls. Um, So I look at Lou as a comic genius. I'm happy to take your word for it, and and you are somebody, you and and you are somebody. I respect your opinion, Noah. Of course, I do. <laughs> and and that. oh, well, of course, of course, I know that, and 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 I uh, gladly defer to your opinion on subjects that you're much better versed in than I am, um, and it may be. Um, it may be a true uh, difference of opinion, you know. I, I also can am happy to buy the notion that Groucho Marx, um, like many great comedians, was in by many uh, measurements, perhaps not much of an actor. Um, but um, but it, it remains true that I just, I don't find Lou Costello convincing at all the way, uh, t- to me, a good actor would have to be. What I see is a performer pulling switches. Uh, I'm going to act scared now. I'm going to act shocked now. I'm going to have a hard time getting this sentence out because I can't stop, I can't catch my breath. Um, right. I, I see... 
the performer working rather than the character being. I, I want to bring up the Limburger cheese scene because to me it's one of the funniest scenes ever put on film as funny as anything the Marx Brothers ever did as far as I'm concerned his pantomime at struggling to deal with the smell of that cheese is one of the most brilliant pieces of comic business I've ever seen so that alone and I appreciate things like that even more than their dialogue routines I think that's where we Mm -hmm. split you also have to remember that I was brought up with Abbott and Costello, like some people are brought up with, you know, whatever their favorite TV shows or whatever. They were my best friends growing up, you know, when I was a kid. So I have that in in my heart as I talk about Abbott and Costello. They were childhood friends that helped me get through childhood. So it was a very uh, important relationship with me and the boys. And as I mentioned to Matthew earlier today, uh, there's also, an, uh, and I feel funny saying this to you, of all people, Noah, but there's um, that urban style that they have. They sound like guys from Jersey. Yes. You know? And I like that. I appreciate that. It's very honest. Yes. It's how they talked. You know? And it's you know, how they were. That is very true. And it's one of the reasons I expected to have a far more favorable reaction to them. And, you know, I I very much take the point, I think you make this point in your introduction to the book, Matthew, that the the need to compare Abbott and Costello and Laurel and Hardy seems fairly arbitrary. Um, However, to to now do what I just called arbitrary, you would think... (laughs) If, if you described these two teams, you would think that I would love Abbott and Costello and maybe not so much Laurel and Hardy. Abbott and Costello are extremely verbal, extremely urban. They are, you know, very much talking comedians. A lot of the stuff I love, they're a lot more New York, certainly. Uh, a, a lot of the stuff that's up my alley is true of them and not of Laurel and Hardy. Um, and yet, um, now Laurel and Hardy, I, I do genuinely love them. And there's a sweetness to Laurel and Hardy that I, that I like spending time with. Um, although I can't say that they, that I find them as rich on a Marx Brothers level or, or even a Chaplin level, that they amuse me, you know, as richly as my very favorite comedians. Um, but you know, if you described these two teams, I would say, oh, I'll bet I'm going to love Bud and Lou. Stan and Ollie, you know, I might appreciate them on a, a from some a greater distance. Mm-hmm. I get it. I get, I get you. And I can see that. Uh, it's just interesting to me that you talk about them as verbal comedians. And Bud, definitely. In fact, that's where his, his main strength was. In fact, it may be his only strength were those uh, dialogue routines from burlesque. He would have continued doing them for the rest of his life. He, that's where he was comfortable. That's what he did best. I think of Lou as a physical comedian. Mm. I don't think of him as a strictly verbal. I, I consider Lou to have all of the gifts that a great film comedian has. He could be verbal. He could be physical. He could, again, break your heart. And he could make you laugh uproariously, you know, with an ad lib. My favorite things about Lou are the things he adds. And it's obvious what you see. There was always an extra camera on Lou because you didn't want to miss what he was doing. And I don't know. I, I mentioned this in the part in my Sarang chapter, but this is what I love about Lou. Uh, he's about he's about to go up into the Temple of Doom. Uh, he's sure to lose his life at this point, but he has to do it. You know, for the natives of the island, he has to go up and be the hero. Bud chooses this moment to run up to him and pay him the dollar he owed him from years ago. Okay, so he's paying him a dollar, and he's about to go up and die. So Lou 
is totally flummoxed by this. And he's, he's talking to himself. Can you believe this? He, he's giving me the dollar now. And he turns to a native who clearly doesn't speak English and he tries to describe the problem to the native as the, <laughs> and there's no way this guy's going to, it's things like that, Noah, that just kill me. It, they're not planned. They're not rehearsed to death. They haven't been taken on the road for six weeks. This is something right out of his head, you know, and that's, I, I guess I guess that describes it better than anything, why I love them so much. I also, again, it's the whole thing about growing up with them every single week for the entirety of my childhood. I have to say one of the things that makes me confident in my my opinions about them is that I didn't grow up with them. Uh, so I, you know, I, I, I don't have to ask myself, is that a factor? Um I first saw them, I think, in the TV show when it came on Channel 4. So that would have been about 1982, 83. So around about the same time when I first got into the Marx Brothers. But I didn't watch any of their films until I was a teenager. Mm. Uh, when I was at, when I was at uh, secondary school. Uh, so, it's some, you know, I, I, I didn't have that childhood love of them there to uh, to kind of influence me. But anyway, we've got one chance left. So don't blow it, Nick. <laughs> Yeah, now I'm going to, this is something, another one of their burlesque uh, go-tos, uh, something they did in every version of uh, Abbott and Costello, both television shows, uh, and in this movie, Buck Privates. They never did it again, Matthew. They never, they never repeated it uh, in the movies. But anyway, this is the dice game. And again, this is Lou coming in, not knowing anything about the game, but knowing he's going to take him for a ride, and things happen. Well, there it is, boys. Seven is a natural. Clean me. Talk about hot dice. Well, there goes my lesson for today. What are you doing, boys? He just gave us a lesson in dice. Dice? Yeah. What's dice? It's a game. A game? Don't you play games? Yeah, I play jacks. He plays jacks. I'm up to my fuzzies. Oh, behave. That's the game. Will you teach me how to play that? Will I teach you how to play it? I should say I will. <laughs> will I teach him? Uh, you see, there's numbers on there from one to six. Now, you roll them out, and if you should roll a one and a six, that's a seven. That's a natural. You win. If you roll a five and a two, that's seven. That's a natural. You win. If you roll a four and a three, that's seven. That's a natural. You win. That's how you do is win. Well, no. Oh, you can lose two. Well, not often. If you roll a one and a two, that's craps. You lose. If you roll two sixes, that's craps you lose. Well, you can win and you can lose. That's it. That's fair. See, uh, seven you win and craps you lose. Well, let's play. You want to play? All right, here you are. You roll the dice. Okay, now play for money. Huh? Yes, we'll play. Now, how much you want to bet? How about ten dollars? Ten dollars. That's a good bet. There you are. Okay. Now, good luck to you. Here I go. Seven you win and craps you lose. Here I go. Go ahead. Whee! Seven. I win. Yes, you win. Uh, wait a minute, I forgot to tell you. Don't pick up the money right away. Uh, I do get to pick it up. Oh, yes, sure. It's your money. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, you roll them again. I roll them again. How much you want to bet? Uh, fade that. F fade that. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Just a minute. Just a Don't minute. Don't get so rough. Wait a minute. Where did you get that fade that? What, did I say something wrong? No, you said it too darn right. I'm sorry. Sorry. You sure you never played this game before? All right. There you are. Go ahead. Okay. Same thing? Yeah, same thing. <laughs> Seven again. I win. Yes, you win again. Well, I guess it's beginner's luck. Yeah. All right, now what do you want to bet now? Let it ride. Let, let it ride. Wait a minute. Now just a minute. Oh. Now wait a minute. Now don't tell me you got that out of thin air. I heard it at the clubhouse. That's what I thought. I must confess. Come on. Well, there was a bunch of boys over in the clubhouse and they had lumps of sugar and they was throwing them out. And I heard one of the boys say that. 
But you didn't play in the game. They wouldn't let me. I was too young. Oh, well, that's different. I didn't Starting know. Tuesday, I'm going out with girls. I don't blame you, sure. Well, that's all right. Go ahead. Okay. I thought you played the game. There same thing. Same thing. Here, four. A little Joe. A little Joe. Now, wait a minute. Now, just a minute. Just clubhouse. Clubhouse. Clubhouse, yes. You learned an awful lot at that clubhouse, didn't you? Four is your number. But don't forget, if you throw a seven before you make that four, you lose. Okay. Go ahead. You start. You start. Where? Where? Clubhouse. Mm -hmm. Clubhouse, eh? Three. You lose. How come? Well, what did you roll the first time? Four. What did you just roll? Three. Four and three is what? Seven. I said seven. Oh, you add them up. Certainly. You didn't say anything about adding them up. Go down to the clubhouse and learn that. That's not fair. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We'll play my way now. You mean I gotta use my money now? Uh, for a change, yes. You've used mine long enough. I'll put it all down. Here, you don't care, do you? All right, now watch him. Here they go. Six. Six. Six is the point. Six. Well, boys, watch this one. Six, six again. Right. You lose. No, 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 no. I win. What'd you roll the first time? Six. What'd you just roll? Six. Six, six, twelve. Crabs, box cars, big bennies. <laughs> well, before you say anything, uh, to, to back up <laughs> to back up that expression on your face, I um, feel that some of these routines you really have to see. I really feel like you have to see them. Anyway, so no, Noah, what did you? Uh, <laughs> uh, I think? think this routine is is mildly amusing um i think um i i did i did watch all of buck privates and i kind of enjoyed the movie um even though i think compared to the other film that i watched in its entirety uh, who done it who done it seems to me to have more and better comedy in it um i agree but i did enjoy buck privates a little more as a film I just maybe because it's so clearly a perfect product of the zeitgeist from it that it emerged from, you know, it really is like that early World War II moment. Um, I can think of a few other Hollywood comedies that are like this. Um, and it's I watched a one recently on TCM, Caught in the Draft. Oh, okay. Hope, yeah, yeah. Which is much more dated, by the way. Danny Kaye's first movie, Up in Arms, is very much one That's of right. these. Um, and um, and as you discuss in the in your book, the number of Buck Privates inspired knockoffs, you know, was was prodigious. I did enjoy that the movie. This this routine, it's sort of it's fine. It has some of the liabilities I've mentioned with some of these other sketches, um, but um, it is kind of short and sweet. It doesn't put it doesn't go around too many times with the same thing. Uh, it does that a little, but it's sort of just the right amount, I think, to to put its humor across. Um, it feels a little bit more. Um, appropriate to the situation here that Abbott is kind of he is kind of bullying Costello here in a way that feels sort of contextual and, and legitimate. Costello mm -hmm. also seems to be like sticking up for himself in a in a somewhat more believable way. I don't feel uh, pity for him here as I sometimes do. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think the material that keeps Costello busy keeps Costello busy saying things um, is the stuff that works the best for me because it gives him less time to lapse into the sort of antics that are, that's the part of their act I enjoy the least. Um, and if Costello is really uh, kept on his feet by the verbal material, um, there's a little bit less of uh, the rest of it. So as to dispel any fears that we might be creating a false impression with selective Extracts. I also asked you to watch an entire film, which is my favourite of their movies, 1942's 
Who Done It? And I chose that one partly because it's got my probably my all-time favorite three moments of their work, as opposed to whole sketches, just moments. Uh, one, as we've already mentioned, is, is Lou with the Limburger cheese, that whole Limburger cheese sequence. Uh, another is them uh, walking into the radio building backwards and saying they're walking out as a, as a way of sneaking in. Uh, and the other is, I think, the, the definitive version of a, a lovely kind of mini routine. It's like an Abbott and Costello routine, except it's all over in 15 seconds, which is uh, pick a number from one to ten. Oh, one of my favourites. Where Lou naively uh, thinks he's in with a shot by picking a number, and of course Abbott says he's wrong. <laughs> and then you think you think he's got he's caught on and he's going to turn the table. So he says, "Okay, you pick a number from one to ten. Uh, Abbott <laughs> picks the one that he was thinking of, and uh, and he lets him get it. Uh, he's too honest. Funny in itself, uh, but also again, if you think if you forget Lou for a minute and think about Bud, there's an additional laugh there, which is the absolute confidence with which Bud makes his guess. <laughs> He seems, number, he seems, number two. He, yeah, he seems to know he's going to be right. So it's got it's got all that juicy stuff in it. But also, I thought you'd like the vintage feel. I thought you'd like the radio background, and I thought you'd like the New Yorkiness. I did like all those things, <laughs> and and the two moments you you've just highlighted are, I indeed, I think, very funny. The um, the pick a number thing, I I did laugh at that. That that's good. Um, and the walking into the room backwards thing, I don't know that it made or leaving the room, but I don't know that it really made me laugh out loud but i appreciated that and that is the kind of thing you the marx brothers might do um it's a, a, actually, a little yes. yeah. shades of the speakeasy scene in horse feathers actually yeah uh, yeah um so yes yeah. i liked all those things i watched who done it twice um the first time i felt it felt like a bit of an assignment um then in between the two viewings i read your chapter about it um and the second viewing of the film informed by your writing about it and the appreciation that you express for it um i did enjoy it more the second time um i um and i did appreciate that it's sort of densely an Abbott and Costello comedy um without too much else going on um i mean i i i this is the way a lot of people talk about duck soup uh you know uh, but it did feel uh, essential but the individual passages of comedy, um, for the most part, I had the same feeling that I've had about a lot of this material. The Limburger cheese thing, you know, the way you describe it in the book, it, it sounds so great to me. Um, if I had read your chapter before watching it, I would have been, oh, I can't wait to see that Limburger cheese routine. <laughs> Which might have been more disappointing. <laughs> but in, it may be so, maybe mm -hmm. so. But in, in the actual experience of watching it, you know, I just, the first time the word Limburger was spoken, I thought, okay. This is going to be 10 minutes of Costello reacting to a bad smell, isn't it? <laughs> what did you think of Alexander 2222? Oh, uh, yeah. That's one good. of my favorite routines. Yeah, I've, uh, solid premise. It's a funny idea. Um, there is a certain frustration with that kind of stuff. And this is actually very common not just in Abbott and Costello, but in comedy in general, a lot of comedy puts you through this kind of experience. Um, and sometimes I find this kind of thing funny and sometimes I don't. But, you know, very often um, it, I just find it, this stuff tedious and frustrating. Mm -hmm. It goes around once, 
funny. It goes around a second time. Eh. The third time, just get let him make the phone call, for God's sake, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I just watched a lot of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, and, you know, the um, for the first time since my abortive attempt Incredible. Uh, uh, at the age of 11. <laughs> you know, the, the thing where they're standing against the revolving wall panel. So Lou keeps being confronted by the monsters, and Abbott never sees them or believes that they're there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is then it's another example it's the kind of thing that i find frustrating more than funny um well this is the strange a, a strange thing because i absolutely agree with you in those scare comedies um it it frustrates the hell out of me on, with the moving candle you know that 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 uh, Abbott never gets to see it. It frustrates the hell out of me that when there's a ghost stood behind them, they don't fucking turn around and see it. But for some reason, when it's something mundane, when it hasn't got that element of of, of outre uh, bizarreness, um, there's something about relentlessly repetitive comedy in which somebody is being screwed into a hole in the ground that just just works for me i mean there's a there's um a a routine where um they keep putting uh cotton wool in and out their ears and try and talk to each other um which i imagine I, i should have gone for that because i think you probably wouldn't be alive now you, you would put a gun to your head um but for me it's it there's just something about that stuff that i like so so we agree as to the nature of it but unfortunately uh it it, it hits our our uh, funny bones at different angles along those lines if you took this material and gave it to two other people i don't think it would work nearly as well that's my point about Abbott and Costello and mm. something we really should consider is the fact, and I say this about who's on first and no offense, Noah, because I've done who's on first too with, uh, with people. Uh, you want to see what brilliant artists they are and what great comedians they are? Watch another team do who's on first. Mm. That's all you need. I'm sure that's true. Yeah, It's all you need. Uh, they were masters at their genre and at what they did. But as far as the, I'm alone here with the uh, scare comedies. I agree with Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks said that Lou had the funniest scare take in the business, and he was right. Lou, Lou's uh, uh, trying to get words out. In fact, let me go back. Oh, I love that. I like that. I do enjoy <laughs> yeah. that. It, it's yeah. It's more. It's the. It's the. You know when yeah, yeah. the room turns into a gambling den, and it's that yes, stuff. I understand. Just gets me I, and tense. I can understand that. I really do. I understand that. Um, but for me, it's like, uh, how can I put this? I guess it's Lou's frustration that we find so funny. He's us. Lou is us. Lou is the child. Bud is the parent. An abusive parent, but he's a parent. Um, but Lou is a child. Uh, and as maybe you find it distasteful watching him act like a child, which he does sometimes, not all the time. But his, his character is childlike. And when he sees the Frankenstein monster and reacts the way he does, it's exactly the way we would have reacted when we were kids, right? We would get scared. Um, I just find it incredibly endearing. I think it wore off as time went on. I think it got less funny. Uh, with uh, subsequent films, hor- horror comedies. But to me, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein is the greatest horror comedy of all time, and no other film touches it. I was wondering if there are examples of the Marx Brothers at their best where you could say some of these same things are true. Um, you know, sometimes when the Marx Brothers are not at their best, um, and and people who aren't crazy about Abbott and Costello will sometimes say, 
that the the doldrums of the later MGM films are you know operate on an Abbott and Costello level or something like that. Yeah, you hear that a lot. Chico producing additional cigars in at the circus. You know, mm-hmm. I think Joe Adamson says, you know, you want to reach into the screen and grab him and say, "Stop doing that!" You know, <laughs> um, and. Abbott and Costello give me that feeling sometimes, but I try to think like when I'm trying to put my finger on what, what the philosophical basis is of my, um, resistance to Abbott and Costello, uh, are there things that I would say critically about them that could also be said of the Marx brothers that don't bother me with the Marx brothers? I, I I'm, I'm not sure what the answer is, but maybe you guys know. Uh, I think about in Coconuts, Harpo in the party scene at the end, you know, when Harpo's getting progressively more lit and keeps getting up with that grimace on his face. That's an example of like a comedian returning to the same gag over and over again and doing it kind of, the joke becomes that he's doing this again Mm -hmm. as much as what he's doing. Um, Maybe it's kind of one of those. Yeah. What about the washing the hands Mm -hmm. in A Day Mm -hmm. of the Races? Yeah, that's that's another example. That makes... that. Mm-hmm. Can I, I throw a question? I want to throw a question out to the room. I'm diving in here. Okay. Hey. Hey. Okay. So, would Abbott and Costello, with obviously a few tweaks, have made the Tootsie Fritzie scene work better than the Marx Brothers? That's a very good question, Bob. Right off the bat, mm. I'll say that it would have to be rewritten. Number one. Uh, should be more their style, of course. And I think that Bud uh, would be the one selling the books and Lou would be right. would be the buyer, right? Which would put Groucho in the Lou position, which is kind of interesting to think about. Now you got to look in the master code book. You're the master code book. <laughs> Even my best friends don't know I don't have a master code book. You're walking around without a master code book. What's wrong with you? <laughs> Son up! Are you crazy? Oh, no. Some days the book gives you the name of the jockey instead of the name of the horse. <laughs> How about this one? Lou, you can talk. Why don't you just tell me what's going on in her room? <laughs> <laughs> now, Buffalo Bill goes ice skating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe, uh, I, maybe part of this is that. You know, these examples are mostly coming from the MGM films and the later. I mean, even Tootsie Fritzy um, and the charades scene. You know, Day at the Races is is a, a cut above some of the films that followed it. But still, we're in a more formulaic Marx Brothers moment with most of that stuff. I think it may be the Marx Brothers movie I watched the least. I have to say, Races. Yeah, it's too way too long, and uh, yeah. basically, it's it's a movie where you could go to uh, the scenes. And pick your favorite comedy scenes and ignore the rest. Um, yeah, it's it's not worth a hundred up Johns. I absolutely agree. Uh, but I just I just want to finish what we were saying. Abbott and Costello me Frankenstein. I, I say at the end of the book, it should be up there with City Lights. Uh, you know all the great uh, classics that came from the different comedians. You know City Lights, The General, all of that stuff. Abbott and Costello me Frankenstein is theirs. I feel. Okay, well, to sum up, then, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Noah, but I think the general impression is that you absolutely love them. You think they're the greatest comedy team you've ever seen, and you want all the podcasts from now on to be about them. That's it, yeah. The Who who Brothers? Um, In uh, in three pithy sentences, what 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 do you what have you taken from this this week of uh, 
back-breaking <laughs> Abbott and Costello watching. Um, I wish I liked them more than I did. When I particularly when I read your book, the introductions. Uh, especially um, it makes me want to agree with you very much. I, l- I really like and admire your advocacy for Abbott and Costello. I like the spirit behind it. Um, and I really wanted to be on that train with you. Um, I think their work itself for a number of reasons, some of which I can be articulate about and some of which I can't uh, just doesn't get me. Um, a lot of the problem I think is that Lou Costello himself, I just find often sort of painfully unfunny. However, partly because I am enjoying your book so much, and partly out of a sense of completism, and I do feel that in order to really have a handle on why I love the Marx Brothers so much, I do need to get more deeply into their peers, even the ones who who don't grab me. So I feel like I would watch more Abbott and Costello. I would go further with this, partly in an effort to uh, appreciate your book as much as possible, and partly in an effort to get a handle on what exactly my problem is here. Um, but yeah, I, I, I reluctantly say, I, I would have to say, I, I don't love Abbott and Costello. So there we are. I think you'll all agree that this has provided conclusive proof that Bud Abbott's real first name was William and that the Marx Brothers roasted potatoes at (laughs) Irving Thalberg's cremation. (laughs) Almost all that remains is to thank Nick for joining us and to ask him to select our final song. But before we do that, Noah, with a word to our sponsors. (laughs) Well, I just want to say we have only been open for business as a podcast you can support on Patreon. Uh, for a little over a month, but it has already been so touching how many people uh, with double vision and a better haircut <laughs> have become uh, our supporters and, and joined us on Patreon. And, uh, oh, including our guest, Nick Santamaria. Thank you, Nick. You're uh, and, and thank you to everybody. Uh, it really means a great deal to us that you are helping us keep this thing going. And so I just wanted to give a few updates about where we are with our Patreon uh, on our Patreon journey. First of all, I want to thank Stefan Timfus and Vaco Savanto and everyone else who provided Latin lessons after our last episode um, and uh, corrected the grammar on the Huxley t-shirt. Supporters at the Fireflies cabinet level can rest assured that the motto has now been properly workshopped. Um, and I want to thank everyone with a better education than I have uh, for getting us there. Um, the first of our monthly collectible, and I have to say beautiful, Patreon postcards are at the printer now. By the time you hear this episode, they will be off in the mail to our subscribers at the Students of Huxley, Left-Handed Moths, and Fireflies Cabinet levels. Uh, as we've said before, every month's postcard will feature new and exclusive Marx Brothers-related visuals. This first one uh, is my design, but we're eager to exploit other artists and drag them into this. If you're listening to this and you're the kind of person who might contribute an original creation to a scam of this kind, uh, get in touch using the contact page at MarxBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. And finally, this episode, number 53, is the first episode with a bonus segment available exclusively to our Patreon supporters at all levels. The bonus segment will post to our Patreon page about the same time the regular episode drops. So when you're done listening to this episode, 
go to marksbrotherscouncilpodcast.com and hit the big Patreon button at the top. That'll take you to our Patreon page. And if you are a member, you can listen to the bonus segment. And if you're not, then for goodness sakes, become a member and all your dreams will come true. So in other words, we're making Nick pay to listen to himself. And it's about time, too. <laughs> I think that'll really help, yes. Uh, I've been listening to these broadcasts, man and boy, for about 40 years now. And I have to say that it, if I had to choose a voice to listen to, it wouldn't be either of yours. Okay, so. <laughs> it's a good thing you don't have to choose a voice to listen to. <laughs> okay, well, we're, uh, I get the choice of uh, song, don't I? You do. And you know, it's interesting that the music from Buck Privates is associated with Abbott and Costello as much as it is with the Andrews sisters, I find. When you mentioned uh, the song I picked, which is Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy, uh, people go back to um, Buck Privates. So they actually share uh, in the glory of this wonderful song. So here we go. Wasn't this uh, Academy Award nominated? Probably. I think it might have been. I think it might have been. Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy. Here we go. No Oogie Boogie. Podcast is produced by Bob Gassell. Matthew Conyamus Books, The Annotated Marx Brothers, and That's Me Groucho are published by McFarland. Noah Diamond's book, Give Me a Thrill, The Story of All Say She Is, 
is published by Bear Manor Media. For more info on this and all episodes, visit our website at MarksBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. Also look for us on Twitter. And for the place to talk Marks and meet fellow fans, join us on the lively Marks Brothers Council Facebook group. See you next time! Um, can I ask a question about um, another comedy team? Uh, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with them or if you've even seen any of their films, but Clark and McCullough, Bobby Clark and Paul McCullough, they were the probably most closely uh, compared with the Marx Brothers of all their contemporaries. Do you find similarities? You know, I can't, I'm not well informed enough to answer that. My exposure to Clark and McCullough comes, I think, almost exclusively from a documentary that Steve Allen hosted called Comedy Classic Teams. Comedy Teams, mm -hmm. which I have had since I was a little kid. And um, Clark and McCullough, also uh, the Bowery Boys, um, and there's a few other comedy teams that I know almost exclusively from what's included in that documentary. Mm -hmm. um, I know a few things about Bobby Clark and his makeup and things like that. Yeah, but uh, I, I, they're, they're, they should be on my list to to get to know them more and uh, and then maybe we'll do an episode where we compare them to the Marx Brothers. Well, but hey, I, they, they, I'm too ignorant to answer your question. Well, don't be so hard on yourself. The, um, uh, they and are too ugly and, and, <laughs> and too short to answer your question.